So as a very talkative person, I know that being talkative can sometimes be a little bit annoying. Um, you guys may know, of course, Winston Churchill. Winston Churchill was the great leader, but he was also not very um, PC for his time or for ours. We, we often forget how much in trouble Winston Churchill got and why he was um, downvoted as well. But he told the story once of a man who was always chattering, always talking, always telling a story. And he said, once this man came up to me and he said, Sir Winston, I haven't told you the story about my grandchildren yet. And Churchill responded, and for that, I am greatly thankful. <laughs> now, not, not exactly what, what this idea of quiet love means, but it sure is funny. Um, and, and, I, and I think it gets at that idea, which we'll be talking about a little bit, is so much of our talkativeness, our boisterousness, is actually because we are selfish. And we're focusing on ourselves rather than acting in love. Quiet is about love. Not, not quiet as in silence, but quiet as we will see focused attention on what the word of God wants us to do. Um, if you haven't already, please open to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Uh, let me just remind us a couple things. Like the book of 1 Thessalonians is written to those in Thessalonica. Paul had a very close relationship with them. And so the first couple chapters is him just reminding them of his love and his ministry to them. And then chapters four and five is like, all right, let's get down to talk about what we need to talk about. Like there's a lot of just encouragement at the beginning. And then chapters four and five, still a lot of encouragement, but a little more like, hey guys, we got to address some things. So we are jumping into that. You got to remember this is built on a lot of affection and love. And if you look back at chapter 4, verse 1, it says, Finally, then brothers. And then he goes on for two more chapters. Um, finally, of course, means, let me get to the point. Finally, then brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus, that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. So it's an introductory thing where he's like, you know, hey, you heard truth from us. We want you to do more. And Paul spends the first eight verses dealing with the issues of sexual immorality in the church and in people. And he is saying, you know what? In a Greek Roman culture that said, if you feel like it, you must do it. We as Christians must have self-controlled lives. We must hold to what the word of God says, and we must say no to ourselves at times, which is a really hard thing to do. And he recognized that. Um, we, we saw in the fact that in the midst of the ancient world, Christianity uniquely said, hey, even young men can have self-control when it comes to their passions. The Greek world said, you just got, you got to do it, All right? Christians live for God's will, to be sanctified, to be different, to be self-controlled and pure. And they had received this instruction, but they seemed to need reminders because they were very susceptible to this temptation. And, and it kind of makes sense because we're going to talk here in a second. Verse 9 says, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. You get that? They are very strong on love, and so they have trouble with self-control 
and with saying no to certain things being in the church. This makes a lot of sense because you don't have to flip there. You can write it down if you want to. James chapter 1, verse 14 and 15. In James chapter 1, verse 14 and 15, James says, Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Each person is enticed by their own desires. That means each of us has different temptations that we're kind of more likely tempted to. I found this great poem by a man named Robert Burns who said, Thou knowest that thou hast formed me with passions wild and strong, and listening to their witching voice has often led me wrong. Some of us are more inclined to listen to different voices. The Thessalonians were more inclined to listen to the voice of sexual immorality than they were inclined to listen to the voice of ignoring people and not loving people. And yet, even though they're really good at this, he's like, guys, do more, do more. So if you're taking notes, you can see what we're trying to get at tonight is talk about three priorities to develop growing love. If we want our love to grow as he tells us to, here are three priorities. God, through the Apostle Paul, tells us to strive for, to reach for, to grow in, so that our love may grow. Verses 9 through 12. Read along with me. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that it is indeed what you are doing to all brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your own hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Verses 9 through 10, we're going to do ABC, make it easy. ABC are our three priorities. A, agape love fellow Christians. Our priority must be to agape love fellow Christians. Verse 9 begins with that important word. If you look down your Bible, it says, now. Or it could be translated, but. There's a question. The, the, The Greek word just means the next thing. It could be used as a fancy grammatical term, disconjective or conjective, meaning it's saying separated or continuing. Paul could be saying, hey, here's a new subject. Let me just move on to it. Or he could be saying, you know what? I had some really hard things to say to you about sexual morality but you don't really need me to write to you about brotherly love. I kind of lean towards the latter. I think he's saying that. I think he said, but I had some hard things, but this thing's, you know, verse eight, he's like, if you disregard this, you're disregarding God. Verse nine, ah, you got this, right? But, but even though they have this, he's like, I still got to say this to you. I got to encourage you to go further in this thing called brotherly love. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves 
have been taught by God. The, the word brotherly love in the Greek world was used to refer to your love for your kin, for your brothers, for your family, your cousins, like that network. But in the New Testament, it's always used to speak of other Christians because God has taken people from different families and formed them into a new family. However, this is not yet, this is not yet the agape love. That's coming. This is brotherly love. Agape love is more of a, a willful choice. I will choose to love you no matter what. This, um, it, Philadelphia is where we get, is how we use the term, means city of brotherly love. So phileo, Philadelphia, it means this natural love that family members have for one another. You have a history. You have stories to share. This is normal. And he's saying, you know what? You guys got this. No one needs to write to you on this. You are doing this well. You love being together. Instead, it's like, instead of having someone write to you, remember, you were taught by God this truth. He says, you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. Interesting. And if you look down your Bible and see that word taught by God, it's one word in Greek, and it's only used here in the Bible and in the entire Greek language. There is nowhere else we read this word taught by God. Some people think Paul coined it based on a passage like John chapter 6. In John 6, verse 44, Jesus said, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will be taught by God. Now, in our English translations, it comes out the same, but it's a different Greek word. Jesus is quoting from the prophet Isaiah. If you want to, you can hold your finger here in Isaiah, in Thessalonians, and turn to Isaiah. Isaiah 54. Isaiah 54 is kind of near the end of it. Isaiah 55 is the great compassion of the Lord. 56 is this guy of God gives salvation to foreigners. And, and God is reaching out into all the nations and making things right. And in Isaiah 54... Verse 12, he talks to the afflicted ones, the storm-tossed ones, and he says, I will make your pinnacles of agate, your gates of carbuncles, and all your walls of precious stones. I will make you strong again. All your children shall be taught by Yahweh, and great shall be the peace of your children. In righteousness, you shall be established for, for you shall be far from oppression. You shall not fear and from terror for it shall not come to you. These are the new covenant promises, the eschaton, the time where God will make everything right for the nation of Israel and for his people. And the spirit will work in the hearts of the children to teach them truth. They don't even need rabbis and teachers anymore. And, and Paul, by quoting this verse and G, referring perhaps to Jesus, is bringing this long connection. Because like I said, Isaiah 56 is the one that's all about salvation of foreigners. 
And he's reminding the Thessalonians, you who are all Gentiles are getting to experience the blessing that was promised to the Jews because of Jesus Christ, tearing down that wall of separation. And now they have this natural love for one another. They who come from different backgrounds and different places love because of the Holy Spirit. Romans 5 verse 5 says, The love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has given, who was given to us. So when Christians receive the Holy Spirit at conversion, they works in the heart of a believer to love what they see God doing in other people. And our stories that we get to share as brothers, like, you know, it's like you get together at Thanksgiving and you're sharing stories like, oh, remember that time we did this thing together? Oh man, dad was so funny. You know, those, those family stories. Now as Christians, we have family stories. We have family stories about what God is doing. We can look at him and be like, man, how much you've grown. That's what it was Thanksgiving. Everyone kept going to my kids. Wow, they've gotten so big. Like, yeah, that's what the kids do. Uh, but no, it's great because they're just commenting on how much change has happened, right? And we get to do that. Brotherly love is excited about the family. But Paul doesn't stop there. He keeps going. <laughs> if, if you are back in 1 Thessalonians, verse 3, he says, You were taught by God to love one another. For indeed, that is what you have been doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. And so we urge you brothers to do this more and more. What's interesting is that phrase, to love one another, is not the brotherly love. Earlier in the verse, it's agape love. Now, he's like, he's like you, you, you don't need anyone to write to you about brotherly love, but agape love, God has taught you. And you are doing it, but do more and more. You know, maybe they needed some encouragement to, to love a little bit more. The, the, the phrase there, one another, is similar to about 20 other commands throughout the New Testament. The one another's, what the, the church life is supposed to be like. How Christians are supposed to interact with one another. And it's not just having mutual story time love. It's choosing to love when it's hard too. Loving another other is a loving one another is a way that helps the church grow. The Thessalonians were doing great at this. They they were serving God in all of Macedonia. That's the Balkan peninsula um, that's just north of Greece. So think like there's Greece and just north of it. it, it imagine being a if our church or another church had a reputation throughout all of California, everyone knew that this church served and loved people all over the state. They, they helped Christians all over the state. That's the reputation of the Thessalonians. We read that in chapter 1, verse 7 and 8, saying that they became an example to all believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere. So we need not say anything. They have an amazing reputation. But even though they've got this love thing down, what does Paul tell them? Excel. 
still more. Christians need to excel still more. I think I know in myself and perhaps in all of you, I, we tend to like to lift up our strengths and, and build up our weaknesses. And if you and I were, were in that original church and we got this letter from Paul, we might say, oh, come on, Paul. There are so many things we have to work on. There are so many things that we are just like not doing well. Why are you t- hitting us on the love thing that we're actually like, we kind of got down Why are you focusing on this? But Paul did this to himself as well. He shows the example of the Christian. And in Philippians chapter 3, verse 12, he says, Not that I've already obtained it, not that I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Jesus Christ has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it on own, but one thing I do, Forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus. Philippians 3, 12 through 14. See, agape love should be pursued, even if we're doing really well. We need to pursue it more. And Paul uses the language of the Olympic athletes a lot, so I think it's good for us too. I was just reading a story about a um, young lady named Michaela Schrieffen. I think I'm saying that right. Um, She's European. And she's an alpine skier. She is quickly closing in on the career um, World Cup record. She is about to crush it and have the most World Cup alpine skiing records ever. And she was recently in an interview, and she said, the way I used to think about winning is that if I got to a certain point in my career with enough wins, I would actually start to feel confident that I'm a winner and I deserve to be there. However, now I realize it's never going to feel that way. (laughs) And every single morning when I wake up, the first thing I'm going to think is, what do I have to to do today to earn that win again? Paul tells us elsewhere to have the same drive. He says, discipline your body, make it your slave. But it's not because we have to make ourselves win and be good enough. He says, like in Philippians 3, "I, I make it my own because Jesus has already made me his own. We are chasing after Jesus who has won. Jesus has been good enough. We get to earn that, re- that reward. So brothers and sisters, I ask you, what area in your life do you think you're doing really well at that you don't need to pursue still more? What is something you're good at? And you're like, I got this down. Paul doesn't really define love here because they've got this. So the point to take away is not, okay, I need to love more. It's, it's actually, don't be angered when someone says you need to grow in an area you think that you've got taken care of. Like as a church, we might think, hey, we're a good family church. We're we're a loving church. People always tell us, oh, you're such a great family. You guys have family. And then someone comes in to say, you know, you, you could grow a little bit in doing this. And instead of being upset, we must respond in humility. Well, you know, yeah. I could excel still more. 
But, but secondly, if I may, people sometimes take this phrase, taught by God, into arrogance. And they go, ah, yes, I've been taught by God. I don't need you people. I, I know these things. And that misses the whole point, doesn't it? Because the focus is on I rather than on God. See, the point is that God is the one who taught and we should be God-focused. And if our focus is on God, then anything that puts our focus more clearly on God, on the infinitely great one, would make us go, yes, I want to pursue that more. Now, after telling them to excel in love, Paul gives them some more ways they can do that even more. And this one kind of hits our home a little bit. I think especially in our modern culture, he says, be all about that quiet life. I know it's a little bit, be all about is not really, it's a colloquialism, but I had to get a B in there. Verse 11, be all about that quiet life. Verse 11, to aspire to live quietly. Quiet is not something our world appreciates very much. I was reading a, a book about Steve Jobs, the founder of Apple, great creator of all these devices. And someone made a quote saying, the reasonable man adapts himself to the world. The unreasonable man persists in trying to adapt the world to himself. Therefore, all progress depends on the unreasonable man. And I think that's the world's mentality. You have to be unreasonable. You have to be loud. You have to get things done. But the Bible appreciates quiet. Here's just a couple of verses. I could have done so many more, but I ran out of time. So let me point out some. Proverbs 17.1. Better is a dry morsel with quiet than a house full of feasting with strife, right? First Peter 3, but let the wife's adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. First Timothy 2 verse 2, pray for kings, and all who are in high positions, even maybe Democrats who you disagree with, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly, dignified in every way. Or 2 Timothy 2, verse 22 and 23 says, flee youthful passions, pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish or ignorant controversies. You know the, they breed quarrels. Interesting, people often look at that youthful passions and they think immorality. But actually, he's talking about the foolishness to never stop talking. <laughs> the foolishness to argue and not be wise in picking your battles. That is youthful lusts, as youthful passions. Paul goes through here and he says, okay, let me give you three commands then. Three commands that have to do with being quiet. The first is strive hard to live quietly. It's a very interesting phrase that we, we kind of have trouble even getting at in our Bibles. Anyway, it says, um, you to aspire to live quietly. That word aspire means to be zealous, 
to sweat from working so hard to fight. It, it, it's like that Olympian who's like, every day I got up and I think, what can I do to win again? Quiet is to be silent or to remain at rest. You can imagine, it gives the image of someone like gritting their teeth to try and hold their words back, like fighting, and you can just see them like frustrated with trying to stay quiet. But, but that's not quite the image here. A, a little bit, but it, it's less in regards to just not saying things and more in regards to accepting what God is doing. In Isaiah 30, another Isaiah, this is earlier in Isaiah when judgments are coming. Isaiah 30, verse 15 and 17 says, For thus says Yahweh God, the Holy One of Israel, in returning and rest, you shall be saved. Returning and rest. In quietness and in trust shall be your strength. But you were unwilling and you said, no, we will flee upon horses. Isaiah 30, 15 through 17. See, in, in that time, Judah was being judged because of their sin. They were disregarding God for many, many generations. And, and God is saying, your strength is revealed to you in repentance and in rest, in quietness and in trust. There is victory and peace in doing what God says and trusting him with the results. But you know what Judah said? No way. We're going to get military strength from Egypt and they're going to help us on their many horses. And God's like, that's not going to work. See, the quietness isn't just not speaking. It's saying, what must I do to honor God and let him handle the results? Oh, he, he clarifies a little more with the second command. First command, strive to live quietly. Second command, mind your own business. Right? He says, mind your own affairs. It, it's a general statement, basically. Focus on your own lives. Get out of the lives of other people. And, and this clarifies what Paul's saying here. It was such a problem in the Thessalonican church that he had to write them again. In 2 Thessalonians 3.11, he says, For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. That, that phrase, busy bodies, in 2 Thessalonians 3.11, is a perfect image. Because the word busy body is translated literally as work arounder. Isn't that what procrastination is? People who procrastinate are not usually sitting around doing nothing. They are doing everything else except for the one thing that they're supposed to do, right? Isn't that how it works? You're like, uh, man, I really need to do my taxes. Oh, but my toilet's dirty. Oh, I got to do it. Oh, and I, I, I really should get some shopping done. Oh, and you know what? The car needs to be washed. I didn't notice that. And, and all these things that we do. And, and this is the idea. People were focused on everyone else's problems and not dealing with the things that God had called them to. They were not keeping to the task that God had given to them. 
And so Paul's solution was diligent and faithful labor at their own jobs. The third command, work with your own hands. Strive hard to live quietly, which means mind your own business, which means work with your own hands. And in the Greek culture of Thessalonica, they didn't like working with their hands. Slaves worked with their own hands. The Greeks were intelligentsia. They were great people. And it seems at times that the church, for unspecified reasons, and we can probably get into some of those in um, verse 13, but they were getting to the point where they were saying, oh, I can't, I can't do that job. Like, I, I, gotta, I gotta do other stuff. And they were relying upon others to pay their way. They were busy. And so Paul said, let him who does not work not eat. Like, if you don't work, you should not be able to take money from others to eat. 2 Thessalonians 3, 10. Again, this is a, this is a problem that he gets to come up back to again. And the Holy Spirit teaches us that work is good. Work is not unspiritual. Working with your hands at your job, at your craft, teaching others, doing secular jobs is actually very good work. And that quiet keeps you from making trouble for others. So the Bible says, if that's a problem, get busy with your job. Ephesians 4.28, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Ephesians 4.28, do your job, whether it is school or teaching others or caring for someone, or maybe there's different ways you can serve. Maybe it's just cleaning your own house. Like we must get to the tasks that God has put in front of us. And a quiet life is a good life because it keeps us from being distracted by what matters less. C.S. Lewis, the great Christian writer, writer of the Chronicles of Narnia, also wrote a great book called The Screwtape Letters. If you've never read it, you should. It's kind of creepy, but it's really good because Screwtape Letters is all about these letters written from a senior demon trying to tell the junior demon, how do you go about tempting humans? How do we keep them away from God, the enemy? And he gives insights. You're like, wow, that, that's really true. Like that, that works really well. And he says in there, in one letter, nothing is very strong. Nothing is strong enough to steal away a man's best years, not in sweet sins, but in a dreary flickering of the mind over what it knows not what and knows not why. In the gratification of curiosities, so feeble that a man is only half aware of them. You can read along with this part. You will say that these are very small sins. Again, this is older demon writing to younger demon. And doubtless, like all young tempters, you are anxious to be able to report spectacular wickedness. But do remember, the only thing that matters is the extent to which you separate the man from God, the enemy. 
It does not matter how small the sins are provided, but that their cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light and out into nothing. Murder is no better than cards if cards can do the trick. Indeed, the softest road to hell is a gradual one, the gentle slope, the soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. And might I suggest that if there's one thing the American church doesn't want right now, it's quiet Christians. I remember friends of mine in college, um, still are doing today, um, but it was a really big thing of like, wow, we have to care and devote all our lives to caring about these poor people in Africa who need wells because they don't have the water that they need. And yet some of them were annoyed by homeless people who would come into our restaurants. Today, we might be concerned about something happening on the other side of the country. I, I read about a Christian man who was like, when, when some, you know, we've had all these issues and shootings over the past year. When he's like, when this one man was shot, this church did not have something up on their website talking about it. How dare they? And he's like, forget it. I'm just leaving all of Christianity behind. What? Because they didn't have something on their website? Or we might be aptly concerned about something happening in a Virginia school board meeting. And yet, do we even care about the children in our own church and our community? Have we put any effort into them? See, to live a quiet life is not to live an ambivalent life where you don't care about the needs of others. It is to care about the things that I can have a direct impact on. You get that? Like to live a quiet life is not to be ambivalent to the needs of others. It is to care about the things that I can have a direct effect on. Not to vote or pay others to do something about it for me, but to work with our own hands, our minds, our will to love others in your direct influence. Brothers and sisters, what has more impact? A loud national campaign? Who we elect as president? Or those people in your lives who've given little bits and little bits, who spent that time with you? Who do you want to be? Like the big loud talking voices don't care about you and me, but, but someone did and we can be that to someone else. We can work with our own hands in the lives of others. Lastly, Paul calls believers to be quiet because third, we are to care about what unbelievers see. Verse 12, do this, be quiet, urge on in love so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one care about what unbelievers see, what they perceive of the church. Uh, in here, Paul gives two reasons why we should care about that. The, the first being the proper life before outsiders. We should care about trying to love 
because we want to have a proper life before outsiders, that you may walk properly before outsiders. In comparison, if you look down at verse 12 and then back up at verse 9, you have verse 9 is talking about brotherly love, this love for those inside the group, inside the church who are Christians. Outsiders are those who are not Christians or churchgoers, who are not seekers. They are not interested in Christianity at all. And the goal is not to be regarded in a certain way before them but to live the correct way before them. As Peter wrote in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. 1 Peter 2, verse 12. They, they might speak against us. They might even call us evildoers, but we want to live in such a way that they know that they're wrong. John MacArthur, writing on this, says, when believers display diligent work attitudes and habits, and they live in a loving and tranquil manner that respects others' privacy, that does not intrude or gossip, it constitutes a powerful testimony to unbelievers and makes the gospel credible. Now, this does not mean that they were to say nothing. Paul clearly was getting into people's lives and telling them about the fact that you worship a God you do not know. Let me tell you about that God. But his point is to not to mess around with getting into various things, into arguments, into fights, into things that do not matter, but focusing on what does. And that includes doing our jobs so that we may secondly not be needing anyone. The second reason is to, to not be dependent on anyone or the ESV translates it, be dependent on no one. It's the same word in verse nine of you don't need anyone to tell you about this. He's like, the goal is that you don't need anyone. As I mentioned earlier, it seems that some in the Thessalonican church were being really lazy. They they were letting the others pay their way to do stuff for them. I don't think that's as much an issue now. It can be. We have to be careful of that, that none of us gets an attitude and, and some people can. We're like, oh, you know, you have so much Give it to me. I have very little. I've had a really tough life. You've had a great life. You need to make my life easier. Perhaps we can do that. I think also spiritually we can do that when instead of trying to do the hard work of reading the Bible for ourselves or, or doing like thoughtful time and prayerfully consider things, we just go to people and say, give me an easy answer. Give me the answer. And we never top and even think about the answer they gave us previously. We're dependent upon others rather than doing the spiritual work with our own hands. Paul says it's a loving act to be self-sufficient in regard to our own, our own work, as this allows us to help others. Now, does this mean we should never be a burden, that it's a sin to be a burden and need others to help us. 
what if I lose my job? Am I sinning that I'm not providing myself because I have to be dependent upon someone? No. Again, scripture interprets scripture. Paul is talking to a situation where people were being lazy. But in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, he tells them instead, 2 Corinthians 8, 13 through 14. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need that there may be fairness. 2 Corinthians 8, 13 through 14. There are times where people are like, hey, I need help right now. What Paul's saying is once you've gotten help, your goal should be to move forward so that you can help others later. That makes sense? So it's okay. It's okay for someone to say, I need help. And, and we as a church do that. We have benevolence. And as individuals, we do that. See, we should try and live quiet lives with brotherly love because we care about our witness and reputation for the unbelieving world. Uh, this is what happens when Christians obey Jesus' commands together. The commands to forsake anger, to reject lust, to love our enemies, to give to the needy, to not be anxious about anything, and to work in our jobs, to do a good job. When Christians inside act this way towards one another and towards outsiders, the world sees the good works that we do as a city set on a hill or as twinkling lights from a Christmas. We, we, were, we were walking down um, a street near our house and I was like, hey, kids, you see that? That's our house right there because they could see the, the Christmas lights lit up. And, and that's what it should be for us. I, I was talking with my dad who owns a business and he was saying, you know, one of the problems I have with, you know, Christians in the workplace is they think they forget that they are not paid to do Bible study. They're not paid to do evangelism. They're paid to get a job done. And afterwards, they could do Bible study and do evangelism, making new relationships. It's like, but as a Christian, we must do our jobs well and get the, the money that we need, do the jobs that we need so we might help others. And, and if you think about it this way, you know, Paul had just brought up with this church that they are the lust of the Gentiles who do not know God. Like, why should we care what they think? Why should I care what my gross boss thinks? Why should I care what my governor thinks when all the things that he's, he's a hypocrite. You know, today we look at pedophiles and we say, who cares about them? And if you recall, I said pedophilia was a approved and supported in the Roman culture. Paul says, no, don't fight fire with fire. Don't win against them at all costs. Instead, do the right thing before them. Be faithful and let God handle the results that even if they cause you and say that you are an evildoer, in the end, they will know the truth. Now, At the same time, like I said, we don't want to be always independent. We can be dependent. Galatians 6.2 says, Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. 
Next time someone asks you how you're doing, it's okay to say more than, "Uh, I'm okay. You can share your burdens, honestly. You can share your needs because what's a great burden for you might not be a great burden for them. And they can share those things. Maybe it's a financial burden. Maybe it's a spiritual burden. Maybe you just need someone to pray or talk to you for a while. It's okay because that is the path that we're able to, to be blessed by others and then become a blessing. 2 Corinthians 1 says that we are made to, no, you know what? Let me turn there. Sometimes, sometimes it's good to quote from yourself, but sometimes I need to just turn there myself. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 4 says, God comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. It's okay to be weak. And the outsiders will see not just these people do their jobs well, but these people help each other when they can't. So three priorities. If these three priorities are true, that we are to give more agape love to other believers, no matter how much we've given, that we are to be about the quiet life that focuses on the calling God has given to us, what he's put before us, not the problems of others. And we are to care about how we are perceived by outsiders by just focusing on what God has called us to. Then, we know we should strive for, to work in the area of stewardship God has given us. Think, think of our Savior. Think of Jesus Christ. He, his work ended as it appeared in utter failure. He was betrayed by one of his closest disciples. His other disciples fled. They, they, they weren't around. Almost nobody believed in him, including his own family rejected him. He failed. He was crucified in weakness. And yet Isaiah 53 says, he will see the fruit of his travail and be satisfied. See, the stuff we can measure so often in church is unimportant stuff. Secondary important stuff. We can measure church budget and see how much money we have. We can look at our church building We can talk about the pastor's reputation. We can talk about the numbers, numbers, numbers. We can even talk about professions of faith. How many professions of faith? But you know what's the most important thing we cannot count? Changed hearts. We cannot see changed hearts. Only Christ can. So let us not boast too much about our successes nor get too upset about our failures, but let us be instead faithful to do what God has commanded us at Irvine Community Church. It's easy to look at those around us and say, well, what about this? What about this? Instead, we say, well, what has God called me to? And let us focus on that. Let me pray. Oh God, we do pray that you would open our eyes to see what you have for us. Give us contentment with whatever you sovereignly decide. And I pray, Lord, that you would stir in us perhaps a a new insight 
into maybe one thing we are allowing to distract us from the good thing that you would have us do. Or there is a great plan, Lord, as we head into the new year. Sometimes New Year's resolutions can be overly ambitious and failed. And yet I pray that you would allow us to think about what might be your calling for us. What is the work we are to do, whether it is in our own job or in our church or in our neighborhoods or our families, that we might put our hands to it and focus so much that you, Lord, would be pleased. And whatever the results are, oh God, we entrust them to you, knowing that we cannot count the results. We cannot count the good, um, the good fruit. But we trust you to handle it. We ask this, Lord, to the praise of your name, Jesus Christ. Amen.